Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. This is Sakib, and today on Tennis with an Accent, we'll be talking with Turkish tennis player Ayla Aksu. Uh, she's been coached by, uh, formerly coached by our very own Mert Ertunga, so the connection is very personal here. Me and Ayla have been trying to get this podcast uh, on the road since December. Uh, Ayla uh, was not feeling well, and then same, you know, same thing here. I had a severe cough throughout the month of January, so here we are after planning this for like nearly two months. Uh, welcome to the show, Ayla. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm good. How are you? I'm good, yeah. So I'm very excited and eager to hear your your tennis journey because we always uh, look at the ITF and the ATP Challenger and all these tours where like players are trying to break into the main store, main tours and, and each player has an incredible journey and uh, the ranking tells a story that, you know, you, you've accomplished so much in the game already. So... A basic question and starting point in my conversations are, I want the guest to tell their beginning story. What's your connection with tennis? How old were you when you first picked up a racket? Who were your heroes? So fill the listeners in. How did it start for you? Thanks for your kind words. Uh, yeah, so I started tennis when I was about four and a half years old, but the journey really started a lot before that. Um, my dad was a professional weightlifter, so he really wanted uh, his own kids to do like a sport. And uh, he did really a lot of research on what we could do. I have a, I also have a brother who plays tennis. And uh, basically, he, after all the research he did, he kind of, you know, came upon tennis like as a really aesthetic sport for women. And he really liked it and he really thought it would be a good option. So he actually bought me a tennis racket when I was just two years old. Um, but I actually started when I was four and a half. Um, and I mean, I didn't really have a choice, but I did do it like with a, with a lot of love. And uh, I remember playing my first tournament when I was really young, like around seven years old. I would play 12 tournaments and uh, I actually I was actually born in the U.S. and I grew up in the U.S., so obviously it was a big uh, influence on me because, you know, I mean, the U.S. is such a big tennis uh, country. So I did have a chance to play a lot of tournaments at that age and, and have like really good practices. And uh, I did do other sports along the way, like basketball, swimming. Um, but I mean, nothing really was the same as tennis for me. And, you know, growing up, there were like I had so many uh people I looked up to especially Feder I'm like a huge fan as still am now today and uh I do remember looking up to Justin Hennin and uh Sharapova and Serena I mean they were like like the big things and um so I I'm, I just remember just watching all the Grand Slams and really like just imagining myself there uh, at the big stage at one day and that's just kind of how my journey went on and at first I didn't really have plans to uh, play professionally um, I mean I did love it but I, I was also thinking about going to college um, and then at some point in my career I really didn't want to go to college and I really wanted to try to play professionally 
And uh, we did actually move to Turkey when I was actually like nine years old. And I stayed there and played there for like five years. And then I came back to the U.S. Uh, because, I mean, the goal was, like I said, maybe to go to college. So I wanted to go to high school in the U.S. and uh, just kind of start that journey to, you know, trans uh, transfer to college. Um, and then actually I did play for the U.S., for about a couple of months uh, to play a closed grade one. And what that basically means is that uh, players from the U.S. region can only play it. So players that, that are U.S. or Mexican or Canadian can play it. So we actually did change my nationality for that. Um, but then it kind of changed afterwards when I decided to play pro. So yeah, I've been playing pro for about eight years now. And uh, it's been a really long journey, but it doesn't actually feel long because it just feels like I started yesterday. But I, I am happy with the choices I made uh, to play professionally and uh, I'm still continuing it. And I'm actually at a tournament right now. No, that's, uh, there's a lot of food for thought and it's incredible. You chose tennis as a profession. It's like one of the coolest sports out there, but you know the reality. Uh, we live this from our TV sets from far. So you said something, you know, that we, I would like to explore further, like your journey between U.S. and Turkey. And we all know U.S. is a very rich uh, tennis tradition uh, country. You know, we, you know, there's a lot of tournaments here. There's a lot of champions that have come from U.S. So, so compare in your experience what it was like to playing your formative years in Turkey and then coming to U.S. when you were 14 and what kind of opportunities uh, you saw like just just compare the the, the federation like what uh, an American player has an advantage because that kind of also puts light on uh, Turkey and other federation like I was talking to someone uh, who's the Fed Cup captain you know uh, for Macedonia and, and the ch- challenges uh, uh, Dimitar his name laid out were pretty yeah eye opening so if you want to compare the two experiences you, you know your formative years in Turkey and then when you tried for uh, a college. Uh, life by playing tennis in the U.S. So if you want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely I like growing up in the U.S. I did have an advantage when I actually uh, moved to Turkey because I had the opportunity to have private lessons. And I mean, it was a bit different, the system, uh, because like I would play at my own racket club and there were like other girls that were also uh, practicing there and playing like tournaments like me who lived around the area. And what we would do is we would actually like talk about a day and a time and we would, you know, uh, arrange the court, uh, make a reservation. And then we would go there and just us two girls at a young age, like eight, seven, eight years old, we would just go and practice by ourselves. And maybe like a parent would be there to like supervise or just kind of be there. And, uh, you know, going to tournaments, it was always with my parents, like they would take me and all that stuff. But I mean, and then when I went to Turkey, it was a lot different because there, like, there were clubs where there were so many kids playing and they had like a, you know, they had like a training group, uh, private lessons weren't really that big of a thing there. And uh, there were like so many young players my age in like one club. And it was really different for me. But obviously, I did feel like I had a bit more opportunity uh, when I moved to Turkey because, I mean, 
I was really good when I went there at my own age and uh, I had more opportunity to get like support from the club. And uh, I think that would have been a lot harder in the US because there are so many other players and like you have to be really good to get some kind of support from, you know, the USTA and uh, all that. So when I actually, uh, when I went, when I came back to the US after moving back to Turkey, It was kind of hard because there weren't many junior tournaments to play, where, whereas in Turkey, like you can actually travel to a lot of different countries to play ITF juniors. And at the time, I mean, I wasn't really thinking about playing juniors. I was just playing like local tournaments in the US, some NorCal tournaments, some nationals, some regionals. And uh, it was a completely different mindset. But like I said, I think... For sure, being a U.S. player and being really good at your own age for sure has more benefits than, let's say, being in Turkey uh, because obviously you have a lot more role models uh, that have become, you know, world number one, Grand Slam champions. And, I mean, they kind of have like a system that's actually been working. And, you know, in Turkey, we don't have a Grand Slam champion. We only just recently had someone who broke into the top 100 just like a couple years ago so i mean we don't really have that many people to look up to and it's just kind of happening now the transition and i guess like for us to maybe get to a grand slam champion it will take like a couple um like maybe 10 20 more years so obviously like it's very different but i do think like playing for turkey now since I started there's so many tournaments here there's one like every week so I guess it has been a bit easier to transition um and also like you can travel to Europe and it's not so far but whereas in the U.S. I mean there's only one tournament in like the whole U.S. and I mean there's so many players coming and I think it's a lot harder (laughs) those tournaments because you have some college players that still come and play the pro tournaments and then you have people who actually are trying to play pro and you know it's it's just kind of hard you need to travel a lot in the U.S. and it's kind of expensive and I guess in Turkey for me it was a lot easier to do that transition from juniors to pro because I was able to play in Antalya every week almost and uh, I didn't really need to travel a lot and I actually have like 11 titles and I think like 10 of them are in Turkey and only one was was uh somewhere else so yeah I mean I I guess I am lucky that I'm playing for a country that has a tournament every week but then it is also hard because to get like sponsorships and to have uh the federation support you is a lot more tough because we don't make let's say have more like a lot of money as compared to the u.s but i mean yeah i guess a lot of small countries have these problems like that yeah. are not grand slam countries they have problems uh supporting their uh you know athletes and uh yeah it's 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 hard to say like no, i think, I think if uh, you're not a <laughs> no i think you 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 really i think have painted a, uh, a picture that i wasn't aware because i always thought u.s had an advantage but now you're saying in your initial part of the response was uh, there were not, there were so many good players. So 
it's it's very tough to get noticed by the federation but when you went back to turkey so let's stick to that part of your journey yeah. and you said uh now there's more tournaments there so talk about the role of the federation how the federation gets involved with someone like you when when does the federation notice a player is it is it is a junior ranking they go after or is it like a feedback from the academies how do they track these players and when do you get when do you know that you have been shortlisted <clears throat> and then what comes next for the federation's point of view um well i would say for me it was kind of like i came when i was 18 and i just you know played a couple of junior tournaments and i played junior wimbledon i got into qualies and i guess they kind of first look at that but in the beginning i wasn't really getting anything from the federation until later in my career i had like a different kind of uh private sponsor let's say that helped out for a couple of years gave like a small budget uh to play tournaments and stuff um so i guess how, how they do it is uh they see if they have any junior uh, players that are like now we have a couple of players that are playing the grand slams so obviously like they see them and they kind of like help them out and i think now uh they have like two players that actually are going to img and they have like this kind of uh agreement with them by img and the turkish tennis federation uh so now it's kind of changed like i think back when i was a junior they didn't really have something like this but i mean turkey doesn't really have that many players so it's not so hard for them to actually like notice someone that's uprising and coming like basically i mean maybe you could have 10 maybe we have 10 wta players and 10 atp players that play really seriously and are trying to you know play professionally um so yeah it just kind of like at some point when your ranking just keeps getting higher and higher that's when they just kind of you know notice you and they support you and stuff but for me the game changer was when uh chala our our uh, player our first player to reach top 100 uh even top 60 she when she got into the olympics for the first time so tennis got into the olympics for the first time with her in 2016 if if i'm not mistaken yeah in rio um our ministry of sport decided to give a budget for tennis for the olympics so they basically said that they would uh you know pay for four women players and two men players so i was like around 300 back then like 350 and uh they they put me in the team as well so that's when i started actually getting some funding from the federation and from the uh from the sports ministry. So that's when it kind of changed for me because I could take a coach with me and you know still get some money back and so I wasn't really thinking about my expenses and like how I'm going to actually get through the tournaments and that's where I kind of like really relaxed and played my best tennis I would say and I had a couple of good tournaments and that's when I reached my career high ranking. But I think in tennis it's so important to have some kind of support financially because at some point it gets to a point where you're thinking about if you're going to make it like through the whole week if you're going to be able to pay for the hotel if you're going to be able to you know go anywhere you like to play the tournament like let's say if the list is easier and you have a better chance of doing a good result there if you're not thinking about the prices of the tickets or the prices of the hotel it's like a huge advantage because you're just thinking about your tennis and i think that's like really important in tennis but 
it's so hard to find a sponsor. And I know a lot of players have a problem. Like people don't have a sponsor and most players are playing club matches. They're trying to fund their tournaments every week. And sometimes they're not playing because they're just, you know, saving up to go to maybe a different tournament for a couple of weeks. And then they're just at home practicing for a couple of weeks and just waiting, you know, not to spend so much money. So, I mean, basically that really helped me during my uh, journey. But yeah, it's really hard. And no, no, I mean, I got is, it. The, again, I want, you mentioned the word sponsor. And in our world, yeah. like sitting from far, we think we know tennis, but we don't know the ins and outs. So sponsor is a big word. It could mean Adidas, could mean Nike, could be head, or could be, I'm sure, independent bank or some other sponsor. So talk about, yeah. if you don't mind, what a sponsor means uh, at that level when you're trying to like, you know, get your foot set in the uh, on the ITF tour. You're trying, even though you said Europe is not that bad or travel for if you live in Turkey, but it's still flights or trains or, you know, hotels and you have to eat, you have to pay for the coach. So talk about those logistics. Uh, what kind of sponsors are there for players in, in you know, that are in your shoes? And, and how do players go about the sponsors? Is there any help? Do parents help you? Is there a federation? Uh, are the agents involved? So, you know, I think people like me will learn quite a lot because we talk about this stuff, but we really don't know how this stuff works. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll talk for my part. Uh, I don't have an agent. I never had one. Um, and... I was lucky enough to have a sponsor that actually paid for everything. And I didn't even think about like anything. Uh, and that was when I was working with Max. Uh, so his brother, own, he's a owner of a hotel and he decided to sponsor me and another player uh, in 2021 in May. And uh, they sponsored me until the end of last year. So basically, they paid for my hotel, they paid for my flight, they paid for my food, they paid for my stringing, everything. So I didn't have to think about anything. And that's really rare. Like, it's so hard to find a sponsor like that, especially they didn't ask anything for return. So they just did it for goodwill. And I mean, today you cannot find somewhere that could do something like that. So I was extremely lucky. But I mean, it's, it's kind of hard. So basically, I had also like a racket sponsor with Wilson. I don't have it anymore, but they would give me a couple of rackets, some strings and some grips. I had a sponsorship with Adidas and they gave me clothes, shoes, but that also ended uh, last year. So, I mean, it's kind of like you have all these like expenses. So the basic needs, like, you know, people are kind of like surprised, like, oh, yeah, a racket is like a basic need to play tennis. But a racket is actually really expensive to buy if you keep buying it every year because like after a year they just kind of they start getting old so actually a racket having a racket sponsor is a really big plus and then having a outfit sponsor is also a really big plus because tennis shoes are also expensive and you actually wear them out in like two three weeks so it's like 100 150 bucks every month almost just for tennis shoes and then stringing as well is actually expensive and not everyone has a sponsor for that as well. So you have all these like basic needs that you actually need these stuff to play tennis. So you need to think about that, buying all that. And then you also have to think about the travel expenses. And then if you have a coach, you have to think about the coach expenses. You have to think about a salary. You have to think about 
Who's he going to stay with? You have to eat. <laughs> yeah, the food. Uh, <laughs> you know, the flights. The uh, how many weeks am I going to take him? How many weeks can I actually afford him? And then you have like, am I going to practice with him? And then you ha- maybe have like a, I don't know, uh, a fitness coach. And then maybe sometimes you take the fitness coach, so you have to pay for them. Uh, how are you going to do your fitness? Okay, you also have a dietitian. You have a psychologist. I mean, there are so many small details. Sure. Uh, in and, tennis. And on, and on top of that, you have to win a match. If you don't win a match, you know, <laughs> then you go to the next tournament. Yeah. And, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like for me, right now, this week, I'm in Antalya and I won my first round in a 25. I lost yesterday's second round. So now I'm waiting for my next round, which is probably going to be Tuesday or Wednesday again. So I'm just staying here and practicing here. Okay, it's great. Like if you're staying at a resort and, you know, you don't have to travel. So you're here for three weeks and you're playing. But sometimes it's not even that. You're just kind of like going to the next place right when you lose. Uh, And you have to like sort out the logistics. Like should I go home, practice a couple of days? Or should I just go straight to the tournament, practice a couple of days there? Do I have enough money to, you know, pay for the hotel or should I just go back home and not play that week? I mean, I was lucky enough to not have these problems uh, a couple years ago. So I'm, I was extremely lucky, but most players are thinking about these all the time and yeah. they're not focusing on their tennis. They're just basically focusing on all these other stuff that most top players are not even thinking about this because they have people doing this and they have the financials to do it. So for them, it's like much easier to just play tennis, you know? And it's like, it's such a mental game. It's so, it's so much easier if you're not thinking about all these small details and you're just focusing on, you know, enjoying your time on court, you know, you're just focusing on your forehand instead of like, oh, if I lose today, should I fly tomorrow? Or what are the flight tickets going to look like? Or am I going to be able to, you know, to me, this yeah, sounds like right. mental toughness. We always talk about mental toughness, about breakpoints, set points, what someone yeah. does. I think this is also a mental discipline to manage all this. And then because we only see the two sets or, you know, an ITF, if the match is not televised, we only see the score. If I'm going to type your name in Google, I say, okay, she's playing in Estonia or she's playing in Antalya. She won, she lost. Okay. But there's so much good that's going behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and even the top players, I don't want to shortchange anything of, you know, the Federers and the Serenas of the world, they got there because they also went through this at one point. Everybody has their yeah. own journey. But once you're established in the top 50, then I think you can make a comfortable living. So I think at this point, yeah. we can bring in Mert. And, and Mert probably won't like it, but Mert deserves a lot of praise. But I want to hear from you. Uh, so you work with other coaches. What was the experience when you and Mert started working together? And I believe you gained somewhat like 500 ranking positions. When you guys started working, you were in the thousand something. And then yeah. when your contract partnership with Mert ended, you were in the 500s. So talk about that experience. What did you bring to the table? What did you learn from him? And and just the, the total package, how was it? Yeah, I mean, it was great. Um, I was really lost uh, as a, you know, as a player, as what I was doing. I almost lost my ranking after I got injured. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with my career. I had a lot of question marks and I have a game style that not everyone agrees 
with the way I play or how I play. And it's kind of hard for me to explain myself and kind of like have people accept the player I am. But for me, what stuck out the most with Mertz was that um, like people were always telling me that I should be more consistent. I should put more balls in the court and I was just making too many mistakes. And I'm an aggressive player. And of course I make mistakes. I accept that. But Mertz was like the only person that actually believed in my game and thought we could really improve the aggressiveness and make it more of a weapon than it already is. And he was like the only person who didn't tell me that I need to put the put more balls in the court. So like at that point, I was just kind of like thinking, oh my God, I'm not crazy. Someone actually believes in what I believe in. And I, that just clicked for me right there. And I mean, we started working. He's such a positive person and he has such a different view in tennis. And he's such a nerd. I mean, I've never seen anyone who watches tennis and talks about tennis as much as him. I mean, I've, I've been playing tennis for, I don't know, most of my life, but I'm not even that much of a nerd. <laughs> and I mean, it's been great. Like he brought so many mo more aspects to my game that I didn't know I could actually do that well and didn't know it would make such a huge difference in my game. I mean, we definitely worked a lot coming to the net, you know, transitioning, coming to the net, um, you know, adding variety to my game. And I mean, he's a great person to be around. And and uh, I mean, we had such a great half an, a year and a half and we went like pretty high with the ranking and got back on track. You know, I mean, he, it was amazing me just being around him learning from him you know getting his point of view and just meeting so many people that he knows I mean even with you meeting you thanks to him and you know listening to all these podcasts and he's always sending me like interviews of players and different like you know stuff people are talking about and no, just like the really little good. details yeah I think Mert's one yeah. of the coolest guys I met on uh, tennis Twitter. And I'm going to be friends long with Mert, you know, before I even, you know, wrap this podcast up. I don't know how long I'll do this. I enjoy doing it. But uh, you yeah. know, sometime on Twitter, you know, you go and people are tweeting about the same match. I try to do it, but it yeah. doesn't come natural to me. You know, I lose focus what I'm watching. And there'll be 10 people talking about the match and then comes Mert, one tweet, and he's totally talking about something else that other 10 people are not watching. So that's his ability. You know, he sees the yeah. game differently. And of course, you know, again, I don't want to like make this a Mert praise exercise. He won't like it, but yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about one year, especially in your partnership with Mert, when you guys had to do a lot of uh, travel during COVID. And he would tell me that, you know, sometimes you guys are going through different tournaments, you're changing flights, and then there's a lot going on. I could see, I'm also connected on his Facebook. He would inquire about, yeah. you know. Uh, different cities if he knows someone but overall how challenging what was this experience to go find tournaments and with all the restrictions the borders and customs during COVID so talk about that stuff um yeah I mean I was a bit more lucky because I have a U.S. passport than like my other Turkish friends because for them sometimes like getting into some countries were really hard because uh, Turkey was uh in the red zone for a while but um, yeah, it was really hard because the flights were really expensive in the, back in the time. 
and uh, you know, just kind of traveling and and all these restrictions that we needed to keep up with all the time. So we had to check if we needed a test. Some, I mean, you know, and uh, it, it, like I remember one summer in uh, 2022, if I'm not mistaken. No, sorry, 2021, the summer of 2021, we played like four tournaments or oh, I played four tournaments and they were all in different cities. So I've never done that in my life. And uh, we were just like literally flying and then we were taking a train and then we were taking a car and then we took another train and then we took a train somewhere else. And then I flew somewhere else and I had a club match during like one of those tournaments. So I flew to Germany at some point and then I went back to a different tournament in France. And like, I felt so tired. Like I never, I never did that in my life, like with traveling and playing the tournaments. Cause I usually played, you know, around the same region for a couple of weeks or maybe like play two weeks in the same place and then maybe would go somewhere else. But this was just like four weeks in four different uh, countries and different areas. So it was really hard. And it was, we were just, I just kind of felt like I was backpacking the whole time. I just wasn't opening my suitcase completely. I was just living out of it. And I just, I hate living out of the suitcase. I really need to put my stuff out of the suitcase so I could see it. But like we were changing places like so many times. So it was really hard. And uh, yeah, it's really tough, the traveling. You stay away from your family, your friends. And, you know, most summers I'm not even in Turkey and in Istanbul. And all my friends are like, oh, where are you going again? And, you know, it's really hard. And uh, but I do enjoy traveling and going to new places. But obviously sometimes it gets really tiring because you're constantly like on a plane or on the road and, and you know you're not really resting and you know us tennis players have like such a long yeah. uh season like i've i've maybe rested like two weeks one one week in the summer and one week in the winter and that's it and most of the time you're just constantly practicing and it's just never ending and it's tough. Sometimes it gets really hard just to even get on the court and do the daily work that, you know, you have to do, but I guess it's just how everyone is uh, playing tennis. It's, uh, it's so what's tough. your, what's your current team now with you and Mert have depart, you know, parted ways. Do you plan your schedules and tournaments or you get help in that regard? How do you, and how far do you plan ahead? Um. Well, I'm kind of like going on my own now. I'm just, I have a club in uh, Istanbul I'm practicing at. And, uh, you know, just sometimes, yeah, I, I still ask uh, Max about, you know, scheduling and what he thinks. Because, I mean, we're still great friends and we always talk every day. And, um, I mean, I try to plan ahead, but it's really hard for my ranking to really, you know, if I could get into a tournament. So I I kind of need to get up to like 400, like 350-ish to be like almost guaranteed in some tournaments where I don't have to think about, oh, am I going to get into qualities or, oh, am I going to get into the main draw? Because I'm having that problem now with like being around like 570. Um, sometimes I'm getting in to like 25 main draws but I'm not, I'm not sometimes getting into like maybe 60 K's or now the new circuit 40 K. Um, but I would definitely prefer playing bigger tournaments 
uh, qualities because there's points. So it's it's kind of hard to make a schedule like beforehand, like a, a month or two beforehand, because I'm not sure if I'm going to actually get into the tournament. So I wasn't even planning to play here in Antalya. I wanted to go to Portugal because there were two 40Ks in Porto and uh, it was on indoor hard. And I practiced in indoor hard in Istanbul. But I mean, the tournament was so hard. Like I didn't even get into qualies and the qualies cut was like 350. And uh, there were like so many top 100 girls or top 150 girls playing there. So, I mean, it's really hard to just make a schedule. And I just kind of decided to play here last minute because obviously like I'm also Turkish. So I have an advantage to get a wild card to a tournament and not play qualies in a 25. But yeah, I mean, I I guess I'm just kind of like doing my own thing and uh, just trying to get it month by month. So I still don't even know what I'm going to play now in uh, February, like end of February. There are a couple of tournaments I see as options, but I'm not sure if I'm actually going to get into qualies or not. <laughs> so I think I might, I might take a risk and uh, try one week and just see how it goes. But yeah, I mean, it's tough. I just I need to get the ranking going. So I'm a bit more certain on you know, which tournaments sure. I would actually get in or not. All right. So let's uh, try to uh, talk about the, these tournaments you mentioned. And I'm not discounting the intelligence of the listeners here, but if someone who doesn't know or doesn't follow the ITF tour, is 25K yeah. or 40K means the prize money is also 25 means it's the most ranking points you can get. And these are a lot, 25 points are huge. So talk about uh, just the tournament uh, structure, 25K, 40K, 60K, for a listener who may not be as informed as some of the others? Yeah, so uh, our lowest tour tournament is a 15K. So in a 15K, is the 15K is the total prize money that's given to all the players. So basically, I think if you win, you get like $1,500, something like that. Um, and you only get 10 points, 10 ranking points, WTA ranking. And basically at 25K, you get 50 points for winning the tournament. So there's a huge gap between the 15K and the 25K when actually the prize money is not like, okay, yeah, there's a bit of a difference, but it's not that big of a difference. Where you look at the points, it's just like a huge difference. And now they have like a 40K that you get 70 points for winning. And a 60K, you get 80 points for winning. So it's it's really hard because, uh, you know, to transition from the 15Ks to the 25Ks, it's not as easy because there's so many points in a 25K that, like, people that are top 150 are still playing because it's a lot of points, 50 points, that can really move them up in the ranking. And uh, they don't have a rule where they say like, oh, a top 100 player can't play a 25K, which is like the second lowest, you know, tournament for the WTA. But even like, a, you know, someone 60 in the world can still play a 25K where I'm playing and I'm 500. So basically like the transition from the 15K to the 25K is a lot harder now. So the ITF actually came out with the 40K tournament, which is great. But now I feel like now that they made the 40K tournaments, they're not going to make as many 60Ks. So everyone who was playing 60Ks were gonna, are just going to play 40Ks and people are still going to play 25Ks, which in my opinion, I think they should have lowered the 25K points because 
there's a huge gap in between the 15Ks and the 25Ks. So there's nothing in between where people can just play and just still get decent points, but it's not going to be as tough to transition through. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it's going to all play out this year because, um, I mean, for now, there's not many tournaments in February or March. I'm hoping they're going to add some more. But, yeah, the point system is really different. I, I personally like how the ATP does the point system with the challengers. It just makes a lot more sense. So, basically, what they did is the 15Ks for men, futures, they get 15 points for winning a 15K, and they get 25 points for winning a 25K. And then they have, like, challengers after that. A challenger, I think, 40 uh 50 and above it just goes on like that so it actually like tells you how many points you get so i wish the wta would actually like copy the atp a bit because i mean it's ridiculous like just sometimes how hard these 25ks are and it's only the second lowest wta tournament and i'm talking about players who play grand slams that come and play these tournaments okay so this is a tennis twitter question i'm going to put here a lot of times, okay. you know, I'm going to use an example like Vavrinka, I think, played a uh, challenger uh, when COVID yeah. was still a thing. And a lot of people didn't like it. And uh, me and some people, you know, debated in a healthy way that, you know, he's a pro. I have no issues. I honestly think he's not taking food from someone's table. But do you think, uh, do you think otherwise, you think a top player should be allowed to play? Because that time it was a different world. He couldn't travel. He rather, he was on his comeback. He wanted to play. I think it was Prague, somewhere he played in Europe. And there was a lot of yeah. uproar about that. So how do you see as a player? You, you see, you know, someone with that kind of ranking who would have gotten a wild card anywhere. Uh, and again, we are just using him as an example, but you said a lot of top 60 players sometime enter the same draw where you are 500 plus. So what is your views on that? Fans don't like it, but I want to hear it from you. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on the situation. Yeah, while Rinko was probably injured and just wanted to play some easier matches maybe for him to just, you know, get the confidence back, get get it back in the match rhythm where as in an ATP is going to play someone very similar to him and maybe he's not going to get that confidence. But I do understand why the players would be really pissed that he's playing, a, you know, a challenger where he could get a, a wildcard to an ATP. But I mean, I guess there should be like there should be a line, you know, like uh, they should at least tell, like there should be like a number that, okay. Yeah. If you're this ranking, you cannot play this and below tournaments because it's just like not fair for the other players, you know? But I mean, if the ATP and WTA don't stop it, then I don't see why he, he can't play, it, you know, cause there's nothing in the rules that says he can't. So obviously like he's going to play it or someone else or someone top 50 is going to play a 25 K in my uh when in my point of view but i i really think there should be a rule about that because it's not i mean when you think about it i can't play wta with this ranking but why should why can they play a 25k where i'm just trying to like get up mm. to where they're playing you know no it's, it's definitely quite the polarizing conversation because i'm a bit older. So I remember once Andre Agassi in 97 plummeted all the way to 141. I think he played some challengers in the recent Pasuke Nishikori Dominic team. They all have played challengers. 
So there's also like that side of the story that, okay, you go back, you don't ask for wild cards. A lot of people have an issue with a champion like Andy Murray asking wild cards every week. And it's a business yeah. with a wild card, you know, they usually reserve for uh, local hopefuls or they want to bring in a superstar. So, I mean, it's a business. Every market is not going to support itself. So they need a Murray to take a wild card, but the tennis fandom is very passionate and there's no right or wrong answer. People care about the sport. So the other question yeah. I wanted to ask you about is uh, when you said a 60 rank player enters and you are uh, in the 500 range. So what's the level of play? You've been ranked 214 once. So do you feel, you know, on a given day, someone in your position, you can beat someone who's ranked 200 or you think the the ranking still a different story? This is an accurate picture, like where someone's going to struggle at a different level. Uh, talk about that. I mean, you know, the disparity of the rankings and uh, and the levels attached to it. Yeah. Um, I honestly think back, like when I first started the pro tour, it was a lot different than it is now. I think the level was a lot lower. Um, like now playing 15Ks, 25Ks and higher tournaments, the level is way higher than it ever has been. I remember uh, when I was playing like for me, when I first started at 18, it wasn't, it didn't take me long until I got like to 400, maybe like a couple of months. And I remember playing someone like 600, 500, like they weren't like so good. Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I never really saw them as a threat. You know, I would usually win most of my matches. And I, I think the level level was a lot lower. And, uh, those like these tournaments like 15ks they were a lot easier than what it is now i mean now you play someone 500 everyone is good like even 700 is good i mean you can't really look at someone's ranking and say oh yeah for sure i'm gonna win because it's not really how it is anymore i mean someone 700 can beat someone 200 like this week one girl she's ranked seven like 730 or something if she beat a girl that was ranked like 270. So, I mean, nowadays looking at ranking, it's so hard to make a comment because you never know. Like, I don't know. I, I beat one girl uh, a couple, like two months ago in Egypt and uh, she had like an 800 ranking or something like that. And like beginning of the year, she won a 40K and, uh, you know, her ranking probably just went up a lot. But I, I really do think the level is a lot higher and uh, anyone can be anyone, really. Mm, and Interesting. The, yeah, so let me I mean, ask the you level... this. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's okay. No, are you, uh, are you better than, uh, your, than Ayla was, you know, when you were 214 in 2017? Are you, are you a better tennis player now, even though your ranking is 580-something? So do you feel, you know, you're playing better today than uh, with that ranking a few years ago? I mean, I think, well, I, I'm playing a lot different. I do feel really good, like I did back then. Um, but I do think, like, it, it was just kind of really different because, like, back then I had, like, a couple of good tournaments. I had, like, a momentum, and I was, at, I was like, at a certain level for some time. But, like, starting from zero has been really hard. And I do feel like I'm playing good tennis, but it's just like so hard for the ranking to actually go up is like when I first started, uh, like after my injury, I was really surprised at how slow my ranking was progressing. 
because like I said, when I, when I started, when I was 18, it was, it was kind of like really fast for me to go up to like 400. And now it's like to get to 400 is a lot tougher than it was before. So I actually feel like I am playing good tennis. I don't know if I, I would compare it to back then because uh, I was kind of staying more on the baseline and wasn't really coming to the net or had any other variation really. So I am really a different player. But I did, like last year was not so successful for me, but it was probably one of the best years tennis-wise in my career. And I mean, I didn't really go up the rankings that much and I didn't really win many matches. Like, I think I lost more matches than I won last year. But so it's really interesting uh, because I do feel like I'm playing good, but the ranking, like to get the ranking up is like a lot harder than it was before. No, I totally am fully appreciating this conversation because there's so much that's going on there. So let's wrap this up. A couple more questions, then I'll I'll let you go. I know you're you're at a tournament. So yeah. I also see, you know, uh, in one of your, I think you played 20 finals, I think, in ITF, and you lost one final to Paula Badosa. So when you see those yeah. kind of names who you were competing with not too long ago, how much of that is an inspiration to keep going further? Because, you know, like you said, you're playing better, you're not winning as much, but hopefully a good series of results is in the future and you can go higher up in the ranking. So talk about that kind of uh, inspiration when you see someone who was in that level and is a world-class athlete right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's all about getting in the work done every day, going out there. I mean, it's tough. It's really mental. You have to go out there every day, practice, do the same thing. Sometimes it gets boring, but I am really motivated because it really takes a couple of tournaments and this run to actually get to like a high level. I mean, if your level is there, your tennis, I mean, it is, if you don't like, if you keep believing in yourself, like your ranking kind of gets there. And I think it's really important just to stay positive and, you know, stay motivated. And I mean, really anything can happen. Like they, everyone starts from the lowest level and one day you see them they're playing grand slams and they win grand slams like Sabalenko and I remember when she was playing in Antalya like the same tournaments I was playing and just seeing her now winning Australia is like I had goosebumps because like you know I, I was watching her and I played against her and you know it's, it's really amazing like how much can change with just like a couple of weeks of good good t- playing tennis and you never know so I mean you just got to keep believing and, you know, miracles can happen. No, absolutely. And like you said, there's no shortcut for hard work. You're all putting in the effort. And there's definitely yeah. a lot of grace in what tennis players do. I'm, I'm just saying other sports are not this hard work, but this is such an international sport and such an individual battle. And each journey is so unique. Even listening to you, I realize there's so much that me and people who follow the sport from far don't know, you know, on what goes on on a daily and a weekly basis. such a grind. So uh, yeah. let's say uh, it's a slight deviation, Sabalenka. So I know you're a player. So you play, you watch all these players. They're like colleagues in the same universe. So do you think uh, with Sabalenka winning, we can have a Shvionte Sabalenka rivalry? You think it's going to change the landscape at the game uh, of the game at the top? Or you think it's still Iga's tour? I think she's clearly the best player. How do you see that change? Um, I think. I think that could change. I mean, Sabalenka played really good tennis and Rybakina also played like really well. I do think uh, we're going to have a bit more different rivalries 
this year, and uh, I think it's going to be more exciting. I mean, Iga is great. She's really dominant, and uh, I do think that Sabalenka can really push her as well. And, I mean, it's kind of exciting to see all these girls, like, they're all strong, and they all have, like, kind of similar qualities, but also they're not that similar <laughs> at the same time. So it was really interesting to watch, uh, but I really enjoyed the final this year in Australia. It was like a really, it was like, I think one of the best finals I've watched in a long time for the women's side. And uh, I was actually happy with what I saw. No, it was an incredible final. And me and Mirth were texting and we also thought like it's one of the three or four best finals in Australia with uh, Halep, yeah. Halep Wozniacki and then Osaka Kvitova, the other two. So let's wrap this up. The last question, you know, you're still pretty young and your career is heading, you know, you're putting the hard work and hopefully you achieve a higher rank. So w- what are the immediate goals and the long-term goals? What do you still, you know, shoot for and what do you think is attainable? Because you are putting in the hard work. So we wish you all the best, but uh, the floor is yours for this last one. Thank you. Um, like me and Matt always talk about, I, I, we don't like to give uh, any ranking goals because um, like I want to talk about last year, I did have like kind of like a goal for myself uh, that I didn't really actually tell people about. I did want to get below like, you know, the 400s at least to finish off the year. Uh, obviously that didn't happen. And it, I did kind of feel like I, I uh, didn't achieve anything last year because my ranking didn't actually go up. So, uh, you know, I just want to play good tennis. I want to enjoy the tennis I play. And I'm sure if I do all those things and I keep working hard and I keep believing in myself that my ranking will get to where I want it to be. And um, I'll be able to play the Grand Slams. And obviously the goal is the Grand Slams. So hopefully uh, one day I'll get there and uh, I'll keep believing and keep working. and. Yeah, just wish for the best. But most of all, enjoy it because, I mean, we have one life and uh, I only have one career, so I, I do want to enjoy playing. And, you know, even if it doesn't happen, Grand Slams, it's okay. But I want to try my best and uh, hopefully get there one day. No, it's incredible. And, 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 and inshallah, it happens for you. And, you know, we all are supporters. And you and so many other players are making, uh, you know, this this great journey. And we only get to Thank see you. the Grand Slams and the main tour. So wish you all the best. And and to the Thanks listeners, so I mean, uh, I'll just say she's Isla Aksu. She's on Twitter. I'll put her Twitter ID in the podcast. Give her a follow, follow her results and pick pick a favorite player outside of the top 200 and just follow their journey. Because when they make to the Grand Slam qualities one day, you'll say, you know, as I was I was backing this person and still back the Sitsipases and the Sabalenkas and the top ones, but also pay attention little below in the rankings. So Ayla, this was uh, immense fun. Uh, we wish you all the best at Tennis with an Accent. Hopefully, we'll bring you back on the podcast again. And that time, the ranking, even though you and Mart don't believe in goals, but the ranking would be a little higher. So all the best and keep doing what you do. <laughs>